Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, July 16th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It was 50 years ago today that Barry Goldwater famously told the Republican National Convention... I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. That quote is famous and famously useful because it's what I call a butt quote. It is used rhetorically to prove the exact opposite point that it seems to be saying. So when people quote Goldwater today, it's to show how out of the mainstream the conservative movement was then, or to contrast ideological purity with the purity of 50 years ago. It's never just used as if to say, hey, that's a great point. Let me give you two more examples of butt quotes. Well, Thomas Wolfe said you can't go home again, but LeBron James, or here's another great butt quote, F. Scott Fitzgerald said, there are no second acts in American life. What a great quote, but almost always used to illustrate a second act in American life. In fact, I googled it. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, there are no second acts in American life, but Pete Rose has it within his power. No second acts in American life, but he didn't count on Tony Bennett. No second acts in American life, but Barbara Walters has demonstrated. So you see how the butt quote works. There is a second act on the gist, however, and it is Maria Konnikova today and the idea of bandwidth poverty. And in the final act, I will spiel about a mother arrested because her girl was playing outside. A little more detail than that, actually. But first, as rockets rain from Gaza, Israeli society is resigned to the fight. rocket fire in Gaza continues. There's been one Israeli killed. The death toll for the Palestinians approaches 200. The United Nations says most of those are non-combatants. Every couple of years, a similar conflict plays out with similar disproportionate casualty statistics and similar claims from Israeli officials that innocents being hurt and dying are regrettable, but not their fault. To understand Hamas's motivations, I talked to longtime journalist and current visiting scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center, Shlomi Eldar, author of the Israeli bestseller, Understanding Hamas. He portrayed Israel as having very limited choices. Really, there is a no magic response for Israeli to stop the Qassam rockets and the Grad rockets over Israel. And, you know, the, I'm, I'm following Hamas movement almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. What's happening now in Hamas that the military wings occupied the politicians? They occupied the movement because we can see a different voices from Hamas. I have to say I was a little surprised by Eldar's answer. He is known among Israeli journalists for his willingness to criticize the Netanyahu government, for his longtime coverage of Gaza, for his insistence on relaying the suffering of Palestinians back to Israel. When asked, in fact, by the liberal Israeli newspaper Haaretz, does the occupation corrupt, Eldar's answer was, 
the occupation corrupts, yes. But still, with the current conflict, he said Israel is doing what any government would do, and Hamas, specifically the military, not the political leadership of Hamas, was responsible for putting Palestinians at risk. Since 2006, almost 2,000 people were killed because of the attack by the attacking Hamas Israel. And unfortunately, who suffered from the regime of Hamas is the people in Gaza. So joining me now is Michael Oren, who was Israel's ambassador to the United States up until last year. He's a former Israeli paratrooper, he's a former professor of history, who's taught at Harvard and Georgetown. He's in Israel now. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Mike. Good to be with you. Is Israel's military goal during this, what's called Operation Protective Edge, is it different than during Operation Hot Winter, during Operation Cast Lead, Operation Pillar of Defense, which were, over the last half dozen years, similar conflicts? I think this is fundamentally different this time. Uh, Under the previous status quo, Hamas had a ceasefire, and under the cover of the ceasefire, was able to expand its arsenal of missiles, bigger missiles, more long-range missiles. And you have something very close to a national consensus in this country, very rare, uh, to get people really agree that we cannot go back to what was before and that we have to change things fundamentally. This was sometimes portrayed, they use phrases like mowing the lawn or giving a haircut. In past operations, it was just necessary to call Hamas of some of its leadership, some of its uh, firepower, for instance. But this is seen as, if I asked you during Operation Pillar of Defense, Israelis would have said something differently. They wouldn't have said then, well, this is the final straw. Now, I think what, what now, I think the, the, the metaphor you can use that is instead of a filling, this is a root canal. Yeah. In the past, we made something that was palliative and just restored a status quo, which, again, there was a ceasefire, uh, there was quiet uh, throughout Israel, particularly in the southern part of the country, and, um, and Hamas was able to exploit that. Virtually everybody in this country acknowledges today that we can't go back to that. Uh, how we get there is another question. Well, will that necessitate ground forces, I guess, is the question. I believe that if, um, if the international community uh, acts uh, robustly, Um, similar to the way it did in removing chemical weapons from Syria. If it looks at some interesting precedents in uh, diplomatic history, particularly diplomatic history from this area, you can find a basis and even a mechanism for removing rockets from Hamas and creating a situation where Hamas has been effectively defanged and Gaza has been demilitarized. Well, we say Hamas, but, you know, there are, couple of factions. Within that faction, there's the political leadership and there's the military leadership. And it's clear to me that the military leadership is playing by their tried and true card, which they think is the only way that gets them success. If there's any progress here, do you think it will, do you think it might come from internal factions or fissures within Hamas? I think it's going to come from the fact that Hamas realizes it has no choice. Hamas has no friends in the Middle East today, has no friends in the world today. Got a lot of enemies. uh, It's bankrupt. A situation can be created where Hamas can actually be incentivized, perhaps, to, to demilitarize uh, through offers of international aid to the Palestinian civilians. Um, they have been uh, suffering under Hamas misrule and, and corruption. Uh, and perhaps uh, some easing of Israel's maritime blockade around the Gaza Strip, the opening of the border crossings between Israel and Gaza, the border crossings between Egypt and Gaza. These are good incentives for Hamas. And uh, Hamas can remain in power. The alternative would be a, a major ground operation by Israel in which Hamas leaders, and not just the poor people, the Hamas leaders will survive and, and perhaps not survive. 
from what I've read and what I know, and you would know better, it does seem to me that the Israeli public is behind this. And in fact, if Benjamin Netanyahu has to fend off any critics, it will be from his right to be simple about it. People who want more aggressive military action as opposed to whatever forces are from his left. But you know the diplomatic community. Do you really see them changing what's long been their perception or long been their actions that, you know, Israel is the aggressor in this conflict? You really see an opportunity to go through the UN and get through a uh, Russian veto in the Security Council to get something really done? Things have changed that much in the international community? It's different this time. I, obviously, Israel has its opponents in the international community, uh, lots of disagreements over Israeli policies, but this is not about Israeli policies. It's about Hamas. And Hamas is recognized by the United States, uh, by the Quartet, which includes Russia and the European Union and the UN as a terrorist organization. And um, even, even Palestinians, even the Saudis, have come out and accused Hamas of, uh, of committing war crimes by firing missiles at civilians and provoking Israeli military responses. They have uh, no friends in the world. No one's going to cast a veto for them. No one's going to try to bail them out. And the last question, since we're speaking to you from Israel, is there anything close to a semblance of normal life these last few days, having to deal with warnings and run into uh, hallways and stairwells whenever a rocket is fired? Israel is this uh, huge paradox and contradiction. On one hand, we've had uh, close to 1,300 rockets fired at us over the last nine days, very difficult to conceive of such a thing in the United States, rockets falling on your schools, on your neighborhoods, on your playgrounds. And, and, and this can be quite terrifying. I was in a television station this morning, um, and uh, nine rockets struck the neighborhood. I came over. Uh, fortunately, only one of them actually hit. The rest were taken down by Iron Dome. But all of the young people working in the studio had to run for a bomb shelter, and some of them were, were crying and even, even, even screaming. It's quite horrific to hear those booms. But the minute it was over... Everyone right, went right back to work. And that's been the story around Israel um, throughout the country. Um, yes, it's terrifying. Yes, it's traumatic. And there's a long-term effect of that trauma. But the terrorists aren't going to beat us. And we're going to keep on conducting our daily life. And you go to the restaurants and the cafes of Tel Aviv, they're all packed at night, uh, irrespective. Michael Oren from 2009 to 2013 when it was Israel's ambassador to the United States. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. Have a good day. And the gist is sponsored by Audible. There are over 150,000 titles to choose from. Audible allows you to download and listen on your iPhone, your iPod, your Android, your Kindle Fire. There's also this immersion reading thing on the Kindle Fire HD, which you can listen and read at the same time and highlight text as you go along. But it's, it's the features, it's the number of titles, but really, it's the freedom. Audible is offering gist listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. So just go to audiblepodcast.com slash the gist and check out one of their over 150,000 titles. A title I'd like to talk about is Clouds of Glory, The Life and Legend of Robert E. Lee. I so do like hearing about Civil War times. Michael Corda wrote this book. It is narrated by Jack Garrett. And I do like to go back to the Civil War and just to uh, let it wash over me as I drive in a car and think about Robert E. Lee and the Horse Challenger. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. And thanks so much for Audible for sponsoring our program. 
So every once in a while, I hear a new phrase that changes my life, a way for me to mentally reorder things. And I used to just not want to complain about minor inconveniences. You know, this doing this show, it takes up some time. And if I'm in the studio and there's no, say, Wi-Fi, I'll just say, ah, you know what, don't complain about it. Just get through it. Or if I come into the studio and someone left a bunch of uh, cups around and there's water everywhere and uh, the toilet paper that they have on the table is insufficient to clean it up, I'm like, ah, I can't believe I'm spending three minutes on this, four minutes on this, six minutes on this. But you know what? It's fine. But now I have a justification for being peeved. I discovered this concept called bandwidth poverty. So the point isn't that I'm minorly inconvenienced. It's that you're taking the time that I need for cognition. I'm experiencing bandwidth poverty, not four minutes of peevishness. But joining me now is the person who introduced me to the concept. It's Maria Konnikova, who uh, wrote about this and different kinds of poverty. She sometimes comes in and we play a little game called Is That Bullshit? about uh, scientific notions. Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. So when we think of poverty, we think of not having money, but that's sort of the top tier of poverty, right? That is indeed the tip of the iceberg. It's really oversimplifying the problem because think about what happens when you don't have money. Suddenly, it's a cascade. It's not just the money that's missing, but you need to devote mental resources to that. And you need to then devote much more time to making the sorts of decisions that would be incredibly simple if you had a lot of money. Like going to the store becomes a whole big ordeal. You have to compare prices. You have to think, What am I going to be able to afford? And all of a sudden you have even less time, then you're even more stressed about the money. And these two things come together to create what you've already introduced, bandwidth poverty, which means you just don't have the mental resources to deal with problems in a way that someone who's not under scarcity pressure does. Well, have they found that this is a problem that if uh, the people who are experiencing bandwidth poverty, poor people who maybe are tasked with filling out all these forms, let's say, to get welfare, if it weren't for the time pressure that they're under, are we sure that they wouldn't also have difficulties, you know, devoting mental resources to these tasks? What we know is that alleviating any one of these three really helps. And that whenever we make extra demands, we're really taxing someone literally. It's kind of like giving them an extra tax saying, okay, well, now you need to fill out this six page form. Well, they have other things on their mind. They're operating under extreme pressure. And there's a really interesting parallel here that I think everyone can relate to, which is lack of sleep. So what we also know about poverty is that poor people don't sleep as well because of this bandwidth tax, because they're always thinking about all of these things all the time. They can't just relax. And so the few hours that they have to sleep, they don't sleep well. And I think everyone has had a few sleepless nights and you realize that your functioning really goes down. Your decision quality after you haven't slept for a week is probably very different. You're not you. So is there a way for researchers to test to see if bandwidth poverty is a real thing? Absolutely. Um, And that's exactly what Elder Shafir, who's at Princeton University, and Sundial Mullenathan, who's at Harvard University, have been doing. They've been working with people from all brackets, all incomes, to try to look experimentally and see, okay, well, how do you perform on decision-making tasks when I put you in different conditions of poverty? And they've been able to find that not only are these things incredibly real, so as soon as you put people in conditions of scarcity, they start making worse decisions and performing worse, but it really is different depending on whether you're 
poor or not in real life. If you're poor, mm -hmm. as soon as I get you thinking about money, mm -hmm. your decision quality deteriorates. Your IQ actually goes down. Mm -hmm. So they did this really interesting study where they stopped people in a mall in New Jersey, and they had them do all these, all these tests, like an IQ test or part of an IQ test. And what they found was that if they just planted the concept of money beforehand, the poor people performed much, much worse because right away that was activating all of these concerns in their head. And even though they were in a mall and they were being paid for this study and they could make more money if they did well, they still didn't do as well as people who didn't really need the money. Now, is there a type of bandwidth poverty that exists independent of the other types of poverty? I mean, the way I'm using it is I kind of now um, don't think of inconveniences as mere inconveniences. I think of them as taking up um, resources. And that's why I've dubbed it bandwidth poverty and not just an annoying Wi-Fi connection that's not working. We don't realize just how finite our attention is. We don't have that much of it to go around. And little stresses can really, it can really derail you. The example I used when I was writing this article is that I had to push back deadlines because yeah. I wasn't able to do it in time. And that created a whole cascade for me because getting that deadline pushed back made me less effective in a sense. And then all of a sudden I had to push all these other deadlines back because now I was not able to do that. And so you can really see that even in my case, and you know, I'm not someone who usually has to worry about the types of things that I would have if I, if I were poor right now, um, even in that case, it really catches up to you very, very quickly. So you can only imagine when it's compounded by other things how much worse it becomes. What is different from bandwidth poverty and just the concept of not having enough time? Bandwidth poverty is about your mental resources. So a great example is Indian farmers. They looked at sugarcane farmers um, before and after the harvest. And people often say, oh, look, they're just sitting on the stoop. They're not doing anything. And it's true. They do have a lot of time at the stage before the harvest because there's, they've already prepared. There's nothing for them to do. But they're not actually not doing anything. Um, the phrase that Molly Nathan used is they're churning. Mm -hmm. So their brains are really hard at work trying to figure out all of these different stresses, you know, well, is the harvest going to go well? I have all of these bills. Am I going to be able to pay them back? Am I going to be able to take out a loan or pay back the loan I've already taken out? Okay, well, what happens if I don't get enough of this crop? What happens if this happens? And so you're constantly worrying about things, which is you have the time, right. but you can't use it effectively because you have all of these things weighing on your mind that are really impeding you from functioning at your best. Knowing this, how has that changed your scheduling or anything else? Well, I am much more sensitive to saying, okay, this is the time when I write best. So I no longer schedule interviews at this time. Instead, I'm going to do all of my interviews in the morning, just get them out and not have to worry that I need to do them later in the day. Because I used to think about that all the time and be like, oh, I have something at four, so I need to make sure that I finish writing this piece by 3.30. But what if I can't finish writing the piece? And on and on it goes. So I've definitely started realizing that there are certain things for which I need to be much more mentally present than others and schedule accordingly. I know we play this game. Let's phrase it like this. The idea that if something's important enough, you can prioritize it and make sure that it's done right. Is that bullshit? That is bullshit because just knowing it's important isn't enough to prioritize it if you don't have the mental resources at that moment to do it. 
Maria Konnikova studies the studies for The New Yorker and comes in on our show oh, once every other week just about to play as that bullshit. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Almost three weeks ago, a woman in South Carolina was arrested for letting her nine-year-old play in a park unsupervised for hours at a time while the mom was still working at a McDonald's a mile and a half away. Just today and yesterday, this story became working mom arrested for letting her daughter play outside. That was from New York Magazine, First Line. Deborah Harrell is currently in jail because she let her nine-year-old... No, she's not currently in jail, so that's a correction, as is the tone of other stories like this one from Slate. Parents are now getting arrested for letting their kids go to the park alone. The story, the real story, is a lot more complicated, and it's a harder call than either of those headlines would have you believe. And it's also a lot more nuanced than the local news media made it out to be. Of course, saying a lot more nuanced than the local news media is like saying having a lot more self-control than Rob Ford, or being more chivalrous than Dove Charney, or less effusive than Fox's coverage of Derek Jeter. I could go on forever. The local station in South Carolina did. The little girl is fine tonight, but some say an area the mother thought was safe could have turned dangerous. Who are these some? Well, here are some of the some. Harrell's daughter is okay, but some say things could have been worse. What if a man would have came and just snatched her? Because you have all kinds of trucks and everything that come up in here, so you really don't know. You cannot just leave your child alone at a public place, especially. Uh, this day and time, you never know who's around, good, bad. It's just not safe. Okay, so the report is overly dire and the risk of child abduction is much, much lower than those quotes, sorry, those some would have you believe. However, letting your nine-year-old play unsupervised in a park for hours on end does not, in my opinion, constitute suitable child care. Not nine years old, not for hours on end, and not day in, day out. A lot of the response to this story actually fits in with ideas that I strongly agree with, that we have become overly neurotic when it comes to childcare, that helicoptering over or nerfing up the little ones does them a disservice in the name of protection. In a big Atlantic piece, there was a link to a previous incident where a mom was charged with neglect for leaving her kids in a car for a few minutes on a cool day. That is overreach. And that piece, by the way, approvingly quoted Lenore Skenazi, who is behind the free-range kids movement, which I pretty much support. But that's a conflation of, I think, one point, that giving our kids some independence within reason is a virtue, conflating that with another point, that this particular parenting strategy, go to the park all day and play, that that's a good parenting strategy, or that it somehow adds up to an idea that we're arresting any parent who lets a kid go to a park alone for any reason for any amount of time. So whereas I do think that this particular parenting solution was wrong, I also want to say I think the mom shouldn't have been arrested and charged with a crime. And by the way, I do think race may have factored into it. The mother and daughter are black. North Augusta, South Carolina is listed as 19% African-American. And we know that African-American preschoolers are more likely to be expelled than white boys and white girls. And that African-American teens wind up charged with more crimes instead of being counseled. So why didn't the authorities give the mother the choice of enrolling the daughter in a program? And they do have programs. That original news report that quoted the some say people did end with these words. The South Carolina Department of Social Services has several programs and services for child care. So I went to the site and it's a little confusing. There's a program called ABC Child Care, 
which is a statewide system designed by South Carolina to deliver childcare services under a federally funded grant program. But when you click on the link, it takes you to a different site, which has a link to ABC Quality. But ABC Quality has nothing to do with ABC Childcare. ABC Quality is a rating system for childcare providers, which is useful. You want to know if you're sending your kid to A, B, or C quality childcare, but it has nothing to do with a free system for working parents. So I called ABC Childcare Program, and they told me about the process of enrolling in South Carolina. I was told one could apply through a county office or go through something called the JUMP program, which is a works program. I was told the application process varies, but if all went well, you could get childcare within a few weeks. It's not an impossible thing to do, but it's extremely time-consuming. And I was thinking of what Maria just told us about bandwidth. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of attention. Time and attention that a McDonald's employee probably doesn't have. A McDonald's employee who doesn't even have a family member to watch a daughter when she's not in school. So I want to be forgiving to this mother. I want to say that to her, maybe a swing set and a cell phone and instructions to walk over to McDonald's where mom works for lunch in what Crime Stats show is a safe town. Maybe that seemed like the best worst option. I disagree. I also disagree that this story means that parks are now officially under the control of the parental Gestapo. And mostly, I wish that the government could have intervened with something other than a criminal charge. And that is it for today's show. As a youth, Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, would roam the neighborhood trying to pick up stray bits of outdoor ambience for her burgeoning sound cabinet of wonder. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was left to his own devices, those devices being a medieval catapult, which he used to lay siege on the neighbor boy's home. You could subscribe to The Gist in iTunes and give us a review. You could listen in Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud. Our daily email is at slate.com slash gist email. Sign up for it there. We'll send you an email. You can play the show from the email. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. Email us at thegist at Slate.com. Summer in my youth was spent as the leader of a gang of tough older boys. I would rule by force of will, by bestowing small favors, and cultivating a climate of fear and reprisals. But it never stopped me at the end of each day from turning to each of them and saying, thanks for listening.